Let me throw up a verse on the screen that's kind of a stark contrast to where we started last week. Revelation 1.6 says this, And he has made us to be a kingdom, and you could put the word and in there, and priest. He's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. That is a stark contrast to Genesis chapter 3, where we were at last week when man fell and man found himself separated from God. We go from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, so something cataclysmic must have happened in between, would you agree? Something monumental from man in the garden to be kicked out of God's presence to Revelation where man is seen as a priest to God. That's kind of a seismic shift. So we understand Adam disobeyed, first effect was that his spirit no longer communicated with God, he wasn't in function with God. God drove Adam from the garden to the degree that he was completely alienated from a life with God. We see that in Ephesians. Ephesians says that it's a constant thought in the New Testament that man is separated from God, alienated from the life with God. Now That's a very firm understanding in the Bible that God became unapproachable. Where he was approachable at one time, he became unapproachable. And the ancients in the Old Testament saw that lived out in their life. Moses literally led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. But when they arrived at Mount Sinai, the people were told, don't touch the mountain. There's a no trespassing sign here. You touch the mountain and you'll be incinerated. You can't come to God and we see that carried out in the temple, as we talked about last week. People would come to the temple, and there's no trespassing signs. Only one person, the high priest, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies to be in God's presence. Everybody else had to stay outside. So this concept that God became unapproachable was firmly entrenched in their thinking. Now, they also understood something else. They understood that there was a priesthood that was established, this method by which to reconnect with God, Last week we talked about how this incredible opportunity was opened up to people to reconnect through a high priest. And the high priest would do things for them. Now they understood what we understand today in 2014. There's sin and there is a God. And sin separates people from God. Sin has this, this barrier. So God made a provision for people to be reconnected with Him. And that would happen through the the way of the priest. The system was that God would unlock the opportunity to approach him through a high priest. That required the shedding of blood. And through the shedding of blood, because the Bible says there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood, there will be blood. There would be sacrifices. And as a result of that, God would turn away his anger from their sin. All of this hinged on the work of a priest. A priest who would come before God representing man, man before God, God before man. That was the role. But the work of the priest, as we talked about last week, never ended. It was just the shadow of what God would ultimately require. Here's a thought that I'd like you to keep in your head as we move forward with this passage this morning. Hebrews chapter 5. The very presence of a priest and a sacrificial system was evidence and a constant reminder man is separated from God. Man is separated from God. 
man is separated from God. So people living in this period of time understood that the sacrifices were just there as a constant reminder that they're separated from God. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10. It says this, but in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. You almost feel the weight of him writing this. He says in verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, this all points forward. It all points forward to the need for something bigger, something greater, someone perfect, someone complete, because what they had was incomplete. So here's what we've established so far. Last week, if you, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get on iTunes or get on our website and, and listen to part A, because this is part B, so that you're on, on the same wavelength here. Previously, we've established men could not come directly into God's presence. This writer in chapter 5 is about to make the case that there's a seismic shift that has taken place. Where man was separated, man can now approach. Go with me in chapter 5 of Hebrews to verse 1. It says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the priest at this period of time had a responsibility. He had to kind of ride a, a middle road, somewhere between apathy and anger. It couldn't be too furious with people for sinning, but he couldn't be too indulgent for their sinful behavior. Why? Because he's one of them. He's sinful himself. He's got sin on him. So he's got to ride this middle road when people came to him. So we're told in verse 2, he can deal gently with them because he himself is beset with sin. He needs atonement and he needs forgiveness. Well, who's he dealing gently with? It says the ignorant in the wayward. What, what English word pops in your mind when you hear the word ignorant? Go ahead, throw it out there. Stupid, yeah. All three services said the exact same word. We're thinking of somebody dumber than dirt, aren't we? That's what you think of when you think of ignorant. But the Bible's using it in a different way. The Bible uses the word ignorant of someone who's uninformed. In other words, they haven't arrived at that information yet. So they're lacking information. Therefore, they're ignorant just because they don't know the details. So they're uninformed. So who's wayward, though? And the wayward in the, in the Greek language literally means someone who's out of the way. And let me explain that for you. An individual like us living in this day and age who becomes consumed with an activity in their life and through almost an uncontrollable passion or perhaps out of rage, or perhaps out of lust, finds himself caught up in a sinful behavior. That's the word wayward that's being used here. And God made provision for those people who sinned that way, and for those who sinned that way today. If you're keeping notes this morning, I encourage you to write down Hebrews 10, 26. Because what I'm about to share with you kind of amplifies that. We're not going to get into that this morning. I'll save that for later. But I want to show you this concept of ignorance and weakness as it's framed in the Old Testament. 
So we're going to reach all the way back into the book of Numbers. Let me throw that up on the screen for you. Numbers 15, 28. It says this, The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. That was the role of the priest. Somebody finds himself caught up in just a moment of rage or a moment of falling. It's not a pattern in their life, but it's something they just find themselves overwhelmed with. The, the, sins, the responsibility of the priest was to offer sacrifices on behalf of a person like that. In contrast to that, though, is two verses later in Numbers 15, verse 30, where it talks about people who intentionally sin. Look at this one. The priest shall make atonement for the Lord before the Lord. Uh, it starts off by the... Per, but the <laughs> okay, fix my tongue. But the person who does anything defiantly, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. What are we talking about here? The contrast is the ignorant doesn't know any better. The wayward finds himself caught up in sinful behavior. But the defiant one, he knows and shakes his fist in God's face and says, I know what you expect of me. Eyes are wide open, but I decide I don't want that. In Scripture, we see there's no tolerance for that kind of defiant, rebellious behavior. Absolutely none. That's what Hebrews 10.26 speaks to. Someone who knows better but willingly, willfully rejects what they know to be true. Now, throughout the priest system, we see these glaring inadequacies. You look at verse 3 and it says, this priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. The high priest is covered in sin himself. As a matter of fact, last week we were looking at Leviticus chapter 16 and, and it said that Aaron actually had to offer a sin offering on his own behalf. Look at this one on the screen. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering. See, the priest had to be power washed. He was covered with sin himself. I came across this writing earlier this week that I want to show you on the screen, um, a prayer that the first century high priest had to make when they put their hand on the head of the bull before it was sacrificed for himself. This is the way he prayed. O oh God, I have committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before thee and my house and the children of Aaron and thy holy people. O oh God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I have committed and transgressed and sinned before thee. Only when the high priest had sacrificed the bull, only when he had been power washed could he stand before God in the holy place? These sacrifices that he made, though, unfortunately, were limited. They were limited in that they only covered the sin. They never took the sin away. So here's the bigger picture coming out of this imagery here. Because he's a sinner, not only are his sacrifices imperfect, not only is his presence in the holy place with God time limited, he could only go into the Holy of Holies and had to leave immediately. But also, because he's a sinner, it means he's going to die. In other words, he's going to be replaced. Therefore, he can't guarantee your representation before God the Father because there'd have to be another high priest and another high priest. He'd never be able to guarantee an ongoing presence with God. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to rabbit trail with you for just a minute. Even if you do mind, I'm going to do it anyways. 
I, I want you to understand some of the background going on in the priesthood system and, and what's being explained here in Scripture. At one time, anybody could travel to Jerusalem. Even up until the time of Jesus, anybody could travel to Jerusalem and see the altar and see the priest at the altar making sacrifices, doing their thing day by day, making these atonement offerings. And a, a reasonable person would read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and look at it and say, wait now, if something like this is that important to God, and these sacrifices had to be made for people's sins, God himself instituted, where is that today? Why don't we still have that? Well, the presence of a formal priesthood implies something. The presence of a priesthood implies that the perfect atonement has not yet been made because the atonement, that the sacrifice that's being made by the priest is imperfect, so you had to keep doing it over and over again. So the presence of a priesthood really implies that the perfect offering had not been made. So let's go back to that original point that I talked about a few minutes ago. The very existence of a priesthood of a sacrificial system is the evidence that man is separated from God. Man is separated from God. The presence of a priest says man is separated from God and he can't go to God on his own. He needs a priest to do it for him. But what we looked at last week told us in a bigger picture that we have been given a megas high priest, a great high priest, and he has already once and for all made the perfect sacrifice and he's entered the Holy of Holies, and he sits at the right hand of God. As a matter of fact, when Jesus died, we're told this little detail in Scripture, which is actually a megas detail, that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from man was actually shredded in two. It might be something you've never noticed at the crucifixion of Jesus before, but look with me on the screen at Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. This is a result of Jesus crying out and saying, it is finished. And when he died, an earthquake. Rocks were split. The veil was shredded and access to God was thrown wide open. It was God's symbology of saying, anyone can come to me now through Jesus. Here's the consequence of that. The consequence is there's no need for a priesthood in your life. As a matter of fact, when you look at the New Testament, you'll see that there was no priesthood established by Jesus, nor by the apostles. It was never put in place in the New Testament. The order of a priesthood is never taught or even recognized in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Peter wrote that you are the priest of God. Did you know that? Let me show you this. It comes from 1 Peter 2.9. But you, speaking of the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim his excellencies. Now, if the priesthood system went out of existence, there should be like some archaeological evidence for that, wouldn't you say? Because if this was something that was that big, it seemed like there'd be some imprint in history that would tell us that this went out of existence. Well, not only was the veil ripped open when Jesus was crucified, but Jesus said, within a generation of my life, within this time frame of the generation that lived, the temple would cease to exist. 
Let me show you the first image I have for you, a photo that comes from the first century. Come on, think about that for a minute, you guys. Okay. It's an artist's rendering. Okay. This is an imagery of Rome coming against Jerusalem, dismantling the city, literally incinerating it, burning it to the ground. The, the next image you'll see is of Rome actually inside the city, not just at the walls of Jerusalem, but coming against the temple. And this big white structure you see in the middle, that's the altar. That's where they made the sacrifices. And Rome dismantled the temple, took away the altar, destroyed it to such a degree that the only thing in existence today, what's known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus said, I promise you, this generation shall not pass away except all these things be fulfilled. In other words, the temple would be taken down. Jesus said literally, one brick will not stand on top of another. So the veil is ripped open within a generation. The temple goes out of existence and from Jesus' lifetime forward, 2,000 years later, what had always been known has never happened again since then. Now Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is still celebrated. October of this year, you'll hear about it in the news. In Israel, they're celebrating Yom Kippur, but you know what's absent? There's no high priest and there's no sacrifices because there's no temple. They don't have a high priest. The tribe of Levi went out of existence. Now, that's my rabbit trail to help you understand the background of what this writer is referring to in some degree as we come into verse 5. That gives you a framework for understanding this priesthood a little bit better. Go with me to verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, meaning God, who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5, 6, and 7 are the reasons that a lot of people stay out of Hebrews. Because they look at it and go, what? What is he talking about here? That doesn't make sense. Well, understand, I told you in the first week that he's going to be quoting sources from the Old Testament throughout the book of Hebrews. So again, he's reaching back into the Old Testament and he's pulling out a couple quotes. The recipients of the book of Hebrews knew some things that you might not know this morning. Those two passages that he's quoting there, those are references to the Messiah. Those are references to the soon arriving king, and these individuals knew that. They knew that the Messiah would be a great priest and that he would be a great king appointed by God. Let me give you the first quote. It comes from Psalm 2-7, which says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, Paul makes reference to the same thing in the book of Acts. Paul says this, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm. So he's saying, Psalm chapter 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The phrase I have begotten doesn't refer to the birth of Jesus. It refers to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus being resurrected into new life. You are my son. I have begotten you into this new life. So here's the result. Because the perfect sacrifice was made and the resurrection took place and Jesus ascended to the heavens as we talked about last week, 
to the place of God where God dwells, he became our high priest. According to that verse you just looked at, forever. Now he throws in this reference to this guy by the name of Melchizedek. Comes from Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Now it's a very interesting detail to understand as you look at Hebrews. The priesthood system came through Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. But Melchizedek is someone who lived back at the time of Abraham, way before Moses. Now Melchizedek is somebody that Abraham came across when he was coming back from a battle at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Battle took place, Abraham leaves, comes back towards his home, and he runs into a king, a king by the name of Melchizedek. We'll call him King Mel. Now King Mel was unique in that he wasn't only a king, he was also a priest. Genesis 16 calls him the perfect priest of God. That's remarkable because there is no other priest ever called a king. There is no other king ever called a priest. And so we see this reference very obscure in the book of Hebrews that says Jesus is going to be this kind of priest, a king priest. So a few verses ago last week, we saw that Jesus sits on a throne of what church? Throne of grace. Remember that from last week? So Jesus is a king on a throne, but he's also our megas high priest. Here's the link for these Hebrews receiving this. He's not like Aaron. He's not like an earthly priest. He's like this Melchizedek type person. So here, I want to sum this up for you. We have a high priest. His name is Jesus, and he's alive. He's not going out of existence. All the earthly priests had their day. They lived and they died and there was a successor. Someone else came into power. And they lived and they died and they went out of existence and someone else came into power. Unlike all the other high priests that lived and died, Jesus lived and died and rose again. How amazing, church. See, he's making this brilliant argument. So in verse 6 he says, you're a priest forever. So his priesthood is established because he's indestructible. Hebrews chapter 7 says this in verse 16. He's become this because of his indestructible life. Here's why this is important for you to know. I know there's a lot of theology going on there, but this is so important. Because no Old Testament priest ever served forever, each priest came into power and went out of existence. His successor took over. That makes this word forever crucially important in your life. Because he is your megas high priest forever. He can guarantee your salvation forever. What you have will never go away. And so, when Satan comes against you, and he will, if he hasn't already, and he says to you, you really believe your salvation is forever after all the crap you've done in your life? After all the garbage you do, you think you got salvation forever? You're kidding yourself. In that moment, church, you can stand on the word of God and say, I know that my Redeemer lives forever. Amen, church? That's the argument to Satan's taunting and tempting and trying to pull you asway. You have the sword of the Spirit, the word of God to stand on, and you can proclaim, I know God's word, and God's word says 
He lives forever, and he's guaranteeing my salvation. Let's move forward into verse 7. There's some details found in verse 7 and verse 8 that you'll never find anyplace else in the Bible. It's the only place that it occurs, and it's in the book of Hebrews. It says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now that language doesn't reflect anything that we have anyplace else in the Bible. You read Matthew, you read Mark, you read Luke's account of the crucifixion or the days leading up to it, you don't see any of those details. There's something here that he had some insight into, either through talking to the disciples, we don't know why, but it's unrecorded until you get to this point. It's not mentioned in the Gethsemane accounts. There's something remarkable about the way he's listing Jesus' prayers. And I want you to see this from an ancient rabbinic source. This was part of the language of the people of this time in describing the three types of prayers that came before God. There are three kinds of prayers, each loftier than the preceding prayer, than the preceding prayer, crying, and tears. Prayer is made in silence, crying with a raised voice, but tears overcome all things. There is no door through which tears do not pass. We're told in verse 8 something remarkable, that as a result of that kind of prayer and the anguish and the suffering that Jesus went through, he learned obedience. Now you might look at that and say, what? How, how can the Son of God learn obedience? He's God. Now, as God. In our framework of thinking, we would say, as God, he doesn't need to learn anything. But as God the Son, Jesus who took on humanity and became a man in flesh, he had to experience what we experience. Any one of us throughout the course of a week learn things through what we experience. Throughout the course of our life, we learn lots of things. Well, Jesus learned lots of things through experience. He didn't need to learn how to obey because that would be inconsistent, impossible for God to be disobedient. But as God in human flesh, he experienced what we experience on a daily basis. Here's what he's referring to. He's experiencing something unique, a pinpoint moment in Jesus' life. Now, when you read tears, anguish, loud cries, what experience in Jesus' life does that make you think of? The Garden of Gethsemane. That's right, Hazel. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before the Roman soldiers arrested him, we're told that Jesus sweat great drops of blood. So it's not in my mind from what I'm reading here the physical suffering that burdened Jesus. It's not the knowledge that they're about to peel his flesh from his body and rip his beard from his face or that they're going to nail him to the cross. But it's this detail that he's suffering anguish and crying over that the Holy One of God who breathed our universe into existence is about to wear sin this is really important as we come into communion this morning, understanding what our God took on for us. He's going to be made sin. Now at Gethsemane, what we see is that Jesus did not oppose the Father. He Rather, he prayed this way. I really would ask, Father, that your cup, this one that you've given me, would pass, but it's not my will. 
I want your will to be done. So I understand he's not praying to be spared from death. Here's how I know that. In John 10, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me, but I give it up freely. That's right. So he's doing this with the full knowledge he's going to die. He's already made it clear he's laying down his life of his own will. What he's actually praying for here is the resurrection from the dead. He's coming before the Father saying, complete your purpose in me. Because the writer had just told us that Jesus' prayer in verse 7 was heard. That doesn't mean that God all of a sudden tuned into Jesus. It's, like, it's not like, oh, I hear Jesus' voice. I haven't heard that. I've got to dial in. No, that's not what's going on. He's not heard him. He's answered him. Jesus was answered. That is, it was answered by the Father. See, since he did die on the cross, that couldn't be what he was praying for because we've just been told God heard him, God answered him. If that was what he was praying for, the son would not have been crucified. God answered his prayer by raising him. The resurrection from what he was dying with. He was dying with the sins of the world completely encased upon him. That was the point of anguish. And so we're told in verse 8, he learned obedience. Now, we're coming into the last stretch here. We're only going to do one more verse, but I really want you to understand this. Jesus agonized so intensely. He sweat these great drops of blood. His heart was broken to the degree that he cried and he shed tears and he's full of anguish because what he had always known through his omniscience as God the Son, he's experiencing here on planet Earth. So we're told in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. Here's what I know through my walk these many years here on planet Earth. Suffering is a very skilled teacher. Suffering will teach you things that nothing else can teach you. So therefore, suffering is a very skilled teacher. We read about trauma. We hear about other people's pain. But until we've been wounded ourselves, until we've walked where someone else has walked, we cannot completely understand. And often the best way to sympathize with someone else is by suffering what others are suffering. So the word although is there. Although he was a son, meaning he's the son of God. Although he's the son, he's given no exemption whatsoever. He's learning the full meaning of the cost of obedience even to the point of death, church. Death on a cross with the sins of the world. See, when I come to my high priest, that's the kind of high priest I want. One who's been where I've been. That's the kind of high priest I need. So when I come before him and I'm in pain, I can say, Father, this is breaking my heart. And you know what he can say in response? I know. I know. I, I know. I've been there. I've been walking through what you're walking through. Verse 9, we're told there's this concept of Jesus being made perfect. And it's, it's an important part to end on because we want to make sure we get this part down. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
Now, some people would stumble over that. There's another reason people stay out of Hebrews, because some of these phrases don't make sense. How can God be made perfect? How is that possible? Well, in the Greek language, the word is teleos, and it literally means this. Something was designed for a specific purpose, and it carries out that purpose. Well, Jesus' arrival on earth was for a specific purpose, and so being made perfect really means made complete. In other words, he carried out what he was intending to come for. It didn't mean that his nature needed to be improved. God doesn't need to change or be improved, but he offered the perfect sacrifice of himself. And this perfect sacrifice, therefore, allowed him to become the perfect priest because he completed what he came for. And therefore, he's the source of your eternal salvation, church. That's why nine ends the way it does. So let me put a a bow tie on this for you. Your perfect high priest, God the Son, the one who created the heavens and the earth, he didn't go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of animals because that couldn't take away sin. He came with his own blood into the Holy of Holies before the Father. And when the Father saw that, he said, that's it, perfect It's complete. The debt has been paid. So verse 9 has this caveat. God always has caveats. Do you see that in verse 9? To all who obey him. He's the source of his salvation to everyone who obeys him. Part of what you're about to do this morning with participating in communion is obeying him. Obedience doesn't earn you your salvation. Obedience is merely the evidence. It, it, It proves that you're really a follower of Jesus. And so we're told this salvation, this perfect salvation, it comes from this source to everyone who obeys him. Uh, I ask you the question this morning before we take communion. Are you saved? Are, Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? If so, can you point to the obedience in your life? Are you walking that trail? It doesn't mean you're earning it. It just means it's the evidence You can contemplate that as we step into communion this morning. Our God, who was unapproachable, whom people were in terror of, who would not come to him because he was behind a veil, approached only through the high priest, became approachable. And our approachable God entered our world and died the perfect sacrifice, presented himself before the Father, And the Father accepted that sacrifice on your behalf, the perfect atonement. With that framework in our thinking, we're about to sing a song that's a song of prayer for you, back to the Father, praising him for what he's given us, but also a song of contemplation. Can I I ask you to bow your heads with me and just pray for a moment before we enter into that? Father, our desire is not only to know you better, because we've already said we're, we're far from close to knowing that and understanding that. But our desire really is to be in a place where what we experience here on Sunday morning isn't just for Sunday morning. That it would carry over with us tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. The knowledge that we have the perfect high priest who gave his life for us, 
So we come before you right now as a group of people who are just going to confess. We, we confess that we need you. Come with our hearts prepared because we've looked at your word and we've already sang, but we're about to take part in this thing called communion, which is one more evidence that we believe and we obey you. Father, I ask for our church that you would receive this as a, a fragrant aroma, that it would rise up before you and it would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, we would pray this. Amen.